Hi, everyone. Welcome to Reverb. I'm Calvin Pollock. My co-host, Alex Helberg, you'll hear in just a moment. This is the second part of our two-part series recapping and reinstantiating our favorite concepts from the first season of Reverb, which ended early this past summer. If you have not yet heard part one of this series, we hope that you'll go back and listen to it. It's available at ReverbCast.com and also on your favorite podcasting apps and platforms. We hope you enjoy this. Talk to you soon. But moving along, so then in episodes six through seven, we had a two-part series on uh, rhetorics of place, specifically focused on Pittsburgh. We had some local examples that we brought in of urban renewal and development discourse from both the mid-20th century in Pittsburgh up until the present. Mm -hmm. Then we had another episode on gentrification and sort of more current discourses of redevelopment, uh, specifically as it relates to Pittsburgh, but also kind of extrapolating out to other places. And also about resistance, place-based resistance to, to urban renewal discourse or to development discourses that puts marginalized or minority populations in particularly precarious positions, right? In our first interview, we talked to uh, Derek Handley, who discussed with us some of the ways in which residents of Pittsburgh's Hill District resisted the uh, sort of further development that was going on in their neighborhoods. A part of the Hill District was raised in order to build a new civic arena and some other districts that were intended to connect different parts of the city. As a result, there was massive displacement, particularly of people in the black community in Pittsburgh. And essentially, they were successful in staging this sort of place-based resistance movement that stopped urban renewal in its tracks in the city. We also talked a little bit more about now that gentrification is becoming more prevalent in the city, some of the ways in which place-based resistance movements are being used to try and contest that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting components that's maybe a little bit more apparent in current discussions of urban renewal and and resistance, particularly from communities that are at risk of being displaced or being hurt economically or otherwise by these new forces of renewal and redevelopment, is that it has a lot to do with money. And that in some ways, these forces can kind of seem out of the control of governance in certain kinds of ways. So as a contemporary example, I wanted to pick up, I think we had talked maybe just briefly in our gentrification episode about the possibility that Amazon HQ2 or their second headquarters outside of Seattle could be moving to a place like Pittsburgh. Right. We are still apparently on the short list mm -hmm. for potential destinations for Amazon's second headquarters. Mm -hmm. So we did a little bit of digging on what the consequences of that might be, as well as some of the resistance movements that have popped up to that. A lot of cities, not just Pittsburgh, but a lot of other places have seen politicians or other people in positions of civic leadership talking about what a boon Amazon second headquarters would be for their city, that it's going to bring in. The promise currently as it's given is that it's going to bring in 50,000 new jobs to the city, as well as something to the tune of a $5 billion investment in infrastructure. And so there are these promises being made that have a lot to do with money and with investments in a city's economy, essentially. And so at the same time, the resistance that has been raised to this also comes from kind of that same line of economy-based discourse. Right. Well, you know, how many jobs are actually going to be local people? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be just transplants to the city who are coming in? Does it require a master's degree in electrical engineering to get some of these higher paying jobs, these good jobs at Amazon? What will it do to cost of living? Precisely. In the city or in yeah. these neighborhoods where, you know, 
the HQ2 might end up. Right, exactly. Another kind of interesting wrinkle to this is that we've seen in at least most cities and states a lack of transparency from governing officials in explaining basically their incentive package that they're giving. So for those of you who don't know, the cities that are on the list, quote unquote, for Amazon's HQ2 have given these sort of incentive offers to Amazon. They've sent proposals basically that say, here's what our city will do for you if you bring your headquarters here. It's very similar to what cities will do in proposals or bids for the Olympic Games, where they'll you know, say, okay, we're going to invest X amount of money in building stadiums or building infrastructure. In this case, for those that have been made public, I believe Maryland and New Jersey, they're offering anywhere from seven to eight and a half billion dollars in tax credits and incentives right. as this sort of package for, you know, like, this is how we'll help you out, you know, Amazon, if you bring this job creating machine to our city. Essentially, I mean, that also calls into question the long term economic effects that this will have on a city's tax base too. you know, are to a certain extent, you know, if bringing Amazon to a city makes it, you know, grow and expand in other kinds of ways, or if there's if there needs to be more than just the $5 billion investment in infrastructure, uh, who's going to foot that bill? <laughs> who's going to be primarily responsible for paying for it? At the end of the day, it could be other regular taxpayers if Amazon gets these sort of long-term tax credits. But it also kind of exposes the fact that it's difficult to mount a place-based resistance campaign against something like this just because of the fact that we don't know yet where right. Amazon's second headquarters is going to be. But we have these kind of nascent resistance movements in the cities that are still on the short list for it that are kind of just raising concerns at this point about, you know, what would happen to to the city or to the city's populations if this was brought in. Yeah, and I think it's really important when we talk about the rhetoric of place to draw attention to what makes it distinctive. So the rhetoric of place in a lot of cases is about drawing on the resources of the place where, you know, the rhetoric is occurring. It, you know, it might be anything from, like, popular associations people have with a place. It might be, as in the case of the Hill District during urban renewal, the actual physical setup of the place where, you know, resistant residents put a billboard in a particular spot and said, no further urban renewal past this line. So they actually use the setup of the area to mount their resistance. And what happens, and I, I think this is a particular challenge of opposing gentrification, is that gentrification is such a messy, fragmented corporate process that could strike in so many possible locations and that, that affects so many people in different neighborhoods differently Yes, that it makes it much more difficult to create a cohesive resistance movement that draws on those kinds of place-based affordances. So because there's so much secrecy around Pittsburgh's HQ2 offer, we don't know what, actually, what actual neighborhood is being offered as a possibility. Right. I think there have been... Some reports that Amazon visited space in the Strip District. Right. So that's a distinct possibility. But without knowing the details, you know, it, it's hard to mobilize Strip District residents or East Liberty residents or 
Hazelwood residents, um, where, mm-hmm. wherever the case might be, because we don't know, it's hard to draw on some of those resources of the rhetoric of place. And I think it, it raises new challenges for people studying the rhetoric of place. What does that mean in an age when municipalities and states and nations matter less than they once did? What, yes. what does the rhetoric of place mean? nowadays yeah essentially yeah when we when we turn away from a focus on on place to a focus on just purely like economistic terms you know this is less about yeah like you said cities states nations peoples and more about just like where well where's the money going this is about corporate entities that are not distinct to a place but that are mobile and can move around and you know shift economic power you know to different sectors too now at the same time we might be able to, as as I was saying earlier, like draw on associations that people have with right. this place. So Pittsburgh has a long legacy of working class resistance. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a place-based ideological resource that people can draw on. Absolutely. Um, and, and even, you know, even the example of the Hill District resistance to urban renewal is something that contemporary movements for housing justice for black communities can and do draw on. So despite the fact that a lot of this secrecy and corporatization does seem to like damage the, the integrity of places, Mm -hmm. places still have associations and they're still ideological constructions that can be drawn on. Absolutely. So in terms of secrecy and um, (laughs) transparency, that's actually a nice transition into the next episode that we wanted to recap, which was episode eight. Alex and Ryan talked to Professor Jenny Rice about her work on archives and how archives have aesthetic and emotional dimensions that affect how we interface with them and how we draw on them as sources of evidence for different kinds of claims and in different kinds of controversies. Right. And I have a couple of what I think are interesting contemporary examples of this. So we did on our on our security episode as well, we talked a little bit about the case against Russia for intervening in the 2016 election. Right. And I think one of the most interesting debates that has emerged over the last one to two years is this debate between, you know, what I would broadly call the liberal and left resistances to Trump. And one of the places where these two camps break down is in their respective theories about the 2016 election. So liberals have really latched on to the idea that Russia's interference in the 2016 election was absolutely central to Trump winning and that that is, you know, in some sense, the most important narrative for understanding the 2016 election is Russia's interference. Right. Whereas leftists are more skeptical of that perspective based on a skepticism of the intelligence community, the CIA, the NSA and the FBI who have been centrally involved in making the case 
for Russia's interference. Right. And also a fear, you know, a, to some extent justified fear of demonizing a foreign country um, yeah. because that can spiral out of control and, and create problems and, and damage possibilities for di- diplomatic engagement. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the Cold War is a great example of that in that it sort of spawned a lot of these different proxy conflicts that in different countries, Vietnam being one, um, that's right. ended up you know, having massive consequences. Right. And so what I want to talk about here is the extent to which I would argue the two sides of this debate over Russiagate have different aesthetic and emotional connections to their respective stores of evidence that they're drawing on for their perspectives on Russiagate. I think that idea of the aesthetics of evidence is really useful for understanding this controversy. So there was actually a, a really interesting episode of the podcast, Intercepted, which is put out by The Intercept, in which there was a debate between two national security reporters, James Risen and and Glenn Greenwald, who basically represent the two sides of this debate. And Risen is someone who has a long history of doing very important straight news reporting on the intelligence community. He broke the story about George Bush's warrantless wiretapping in 2005, which was basically the precursor to the Edward Snowden NSA story that Glenn Greenwald then broke in 2013. So, you know, Risen and and Greenwald are similarly skeptical of the intelligence community. Nevertheless, Risen now is a big believer in the Russiagate narrative as the explanation for the 2016 election, and Greenwald is a a huge skeptic of it. And so we're going to play some clips from the episode and then talk about them. And what I find compelling today is that there are a number of facts coming from a number of different uh, sources, both in the U.S. government, outside the government, in foreign press. Uh, The Intercept has received anonymously documents that the the government didn't want us to have that all point to a, a fairly strong conclusion that the Russians intervened in the election. I don't believe that there is the same level of evidence to prove collusion. I don't think there, we're anywhere close to proving collusion yet. So in that first clip, you can hear that Ryzen has one particular idea of what the archive is that he's drawing on to form his perspective. So he says there are a number of facts coming from a number of different sources, mm-hmm. U.S. government, outside the government, and foreign press. The Intercept itself has gotten anonymous documents. So... He has this archive that he's constructing that he sees as, you know, proving open and shut case. So there's, the, you know, there's a strong chance that Russia intervened in the election. Right. And thus far, I think the available evidence has been extremely weak to non-existent. It's non-existent on whether Putin specifically ordered this. It's extremely weak to non-existent on whether the Russian government actually did the hacking of the Podesta and the DNC emails. Um, I think there's some evidence now that they were active in doing fake social media accounts, whether how linked they were to the government, how centralized that were, I think those are all open questions. As rational citizens and good journalists, we should not believe claims from the US government about things that happened, especially inflammatory claims about their adversaries, absent convincing evidence that we can assess and review rationally. 
and that with regard to the core claims of the Russia Trump story, the core claims that from the beginning have spawned the controversy, namely that Putin ordered the hacking of the DNC and Podesta email inboxes, there is little to no convincing evidence that that's true. Well, I think I've I'm always said there should be a full investigation, which is what I really want to happen, where all of this evidence is put forth in a way that we don't have to rely on anonymous leaks and little snippets and self-serving people leaking certain parts for whatever their agenda is that we can't really assess, that we should actually one day be able to see all of the evidence so that we know what really happened here. So on the one hand, we have a number of facts coming from different sources, U.S. government, outside the government, in foreign press, anonymous documents that the government didn't want us to have. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, we have anonymous leaks, little snippets, and self-serving people leaking certain parts for whatever their agenda is. Right. And Ryzen actually goes on to talk about a distinction that he sees between the way that he and Glenn are approaching the issue. I think that gets to the heart of the difference in how we, you and I approach this story. And I am trying to approach it journalistically. I've been a reporter all my life. This is the first time I've been a columnist, really. Uh, and so I'm trying to do it based on, is this, what is this as a story, a news, a news story? And I think you, as an advocate, with your, your background in advocacy, uh, I think you approach it as a political question. I think you're looking at it as a political problem that has a lot of political consequences for the country. And it, it certainly does, but that's a different approach to the way I'm trying to look at it. I'm just trying to do this. Is this a really good story? Yes, it's a good news story. And I think you see it as this is a political threat to uh, the, the political, the way in which you, your political agenda which is a very valid way to look at it. It's just different from mine. I think it's really interesting, if nothing else, just to see how these two name their archives, right? I mean, right. we had kind of talked about the actual linguistic strategies they used to talk about it. They contain what you could consider an aesthetic orientation to it. You know, somebody like Greenwald, you know, for those of you who have followed his reporting, he tends to have kind of a mistrust of the national security state for a number of different reasons. And so, you know, and so... To an extent, he he does, you know, he characterizes this archive as, you know, just being, well, they're little snippets. They're, self, they're made by self-serving people. They're anonymous leaks. You know, to what extent can we really trust this? That inflects that aesthetic orientation that he has towards the archive. Whereas, you know, Ryzen, you know, he he's naming that he's sort of presenting these as being, you know, coming from places of authority, as well as there's a little bit of drama here too, right? You know, we received anonymously documents that the government didn't want us to have, you know, so there is this kind of, you know, mm -hmm. Ryzen talks about this as being a good story in a large right. part, which is, a, which yeah, is I think, literally a really... says, I'm just trying to do this. Is this a really good story? Yes, it's a good news story. Yeah. And I think you, he's talking about Glenn, mm -hmm. see it as this is a political threat to your political agenda. Right. So they're kind of naming, yeah, they're naming their, their approaches right there. And they're uh, naming their aesthetic evaluations of the evidence. Exactly. And yeah, so I think what you have here is that Ryzen is very emotionally attached to the idea of Russiagate explaining Trump and it being a great story of how this horrible person became president. And Greenwald has an emotional attachment to the idea that the intelligence community is manipulative and deceitful 
and regularly uses the U.S. press as a tool of its, you know, for its political agenda, which is historically true. Yeah. But regardless of whether it's historically true, what we're talking about is that evidence has aesthetic qualities. Evidence is not something that you just tally in a spreadsheet. You look at the bottom line mm-hmm. and, you know, you figure out who had, who, who made the greater number of good points. Right. It's something that you have to connect to on an aesthetic level to exactly. fully accept a given point of view. It, yeah, that gets to the the rhetoricality of evidence. This is the you know, we're talking about not just the way that it exists, but it's people's reaction to certain kinds of evidence and the ways that certain evidence can be more effective than others for the reason that people have an aesthetic connection to it. Right. And so the second example of this I wanted to talk about is uh, the right wing QAnon conspiracy. Right. So for those so for those who don't know, yeah. So for those who don't know, QAnon is a conspiracy theory that started on 4chan, which is a far right internet message board. And QAnon is basically the idea that there is a deep asset in the military of Trump's agenda, who is undermining all of the forces of the deep state and other like powerful corporate entities in the U.S. that are trying to thwart Trump's agenda. So QAnon is secretly building this massive effort to make sure that Trump's agenda goes through and that that involves arresting and taking down and investigating lots of corrupt, evil, nefarious actors in these various spheres. And what's what's amazing about the QAnon conspiracy theory is just how all-encompassing it is and how virtually limitless the expanse is that evidence for it covers. And so there's a really great visual representation of this, which we're going to include in the blog post that goes with this episode that was created by a pro-Trump blogger named The Infomaniac. His website is Through the Looking Glass. It's a WordPress. And so he has this post called Learn to Read the Map, a cartography (laughs) of the globally organized corruption networks. Boy, it is something. (laughs) A treasure trove of maps, diagrams, org charts, and family trees. So there's this massive diagram that basically includes everything. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to find. It's hard to think of something. Time and space. It's hard to think of something politically relevant in the last century or so, and even beyond that. That's. I mean, this is everything going from the pharaohs of Egypt uh, up to the MK Ultra project to the Vatican. Yeah, to the Vatican to um, yeah to MAGA and and uh, the, like the MAGA campaign and Donald Trump. Mussolini, Bolshevism, mass surveillance, military industrial complex. Oh, the classic conspiracy favorite, the protocols of the elders of Zion. Big Pharma, Monsanto. There's this, what I really like about this chart is that it, uh, it has on the right side of this, if you can separate them into columns, I don't know if that's what the intention here was. This person maybe needs a little bit of a lesson in uh, visual design uh, for creating their org charts, but on one side you have war slash violence, and on the other side you have technology slash spirituality, <laughs> which I just love the idea that that, uh, that technology and spirituality can be paired together and that it can be contrasted with war and violence. That's, I don't know, that... That's very interesting to me. Yeah. And so, you know, the point here is that 
once again, we can see that there is a kind of aesthetics to evidence that yeah. people glom on to certain points of view based on a real emotional and like taste-based right. attachment or aversion mm -hmm. to a set of evidence. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to try and pick apart what that aesthetic is for something like this map. I just draw again on Jenny Rice's work where she talks about the accumulation of evidence being yeah. one of the more profound sort of aesthetic qualities of it. So just the process of accumulating more evidence, seeing more connections between that evidence. I mean, this is a primo example of just having a massive accumulation of connections between different nodes in a network that shows how everything somehow there there's a coherence to all of it like somehow everything is interconnected and you can just continue going farther and farther out and you're going to see that it's that it's all connected we can come with we can come up with this all-encompassing theory of everything that shows how it all is working together i think fundamentally it gives Trump supporters something to do. Right. Um, they are grappling with the fact that, as in any presidential campaign, they were sold a narrative of what would happen after Trump got elected. Yeah. Hillary Clinton would be would be locked up. The, the swamp would be drained. Right, exactly. And this gives them a way to feel involved in actually realizing those things just right. by tracking it and making mm -hmm. connections between the ways in which it's working apparently yeah. behind the scenes. You're creating a kind of an extended universe where these things are actually happening just in the background. Right. You, you can't see it, but we've got, you know, we've got a, we've got an inside source that tells us that these things are that everything that we wanted is just is happening it's just happening in secret yeah and i don't want to draw an equivalence but i do think a similar dynamic is occurring on the liberal side of the ledger with russiagate sure where once again it gives people a way to feel involved it gives people an extended universe to track and to constantly be circulating among mediated publics online yeah. And it also compensates for the fact that their political agenda is not being realized. Yeah. It gives them a kind of emotional release Absolutely. from that sense of political injustice. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, it, yeah, that really does hit home on, on the power of all this is that it's in a big way. Again, no matter what we're talking about, our orientation towards evidence always has an aesthetic component, an emotional or affective component. We can't ever escape from that, no matter how you know strictly fact-based we can proclaim to be. Absolutely. So our final episode from season one, we talked very broadly about language and identity. We specifically talked to Professor Barbara Johnstone about her work on Pittsburghese, the dialect of English spoken by some residents of uh, the great city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. But we also talked kind of more generally about how language and identity function mutually and I think the most important concept from that episode was probably language ideology, yeah. which is this notion that we all have ways that we conceptualize and evaluate 
the ways that other people speak and mm-hmm. the ways that we ourselves speak. Right. And that those evaluations and those conceptualizations can do rhetorical work. Mm-hmm. In economic situations, in political situations, we draw on those evaluations and conceptualizations as resources to get over on other people, to get ahead mm-hmm. of other people, to commingle and connect to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think probably the most entertaining recent example of this was the film Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley, right. which came out in August. And this movie, it's remarkable for a lot of reasons. One of the first movies in a very long time that has an explicitly left-wing pro-labor message. Yes, um, absolutely. It's, it's, it's about a workforce that unionizes and fights for better working conditions. But also, it engages quite directly with ideas of language ideology, I would say. So there's this conceit of the white voice that the main character, Cash, is encouraged to use by the character Langston, played by Danny Glover. He should use his white voice to advance in the company, make more sales. Cash is working for a telemarketing company, so the way that he sounds over the phone is very critical to getting ahead at this company. And so we're just going to play a clip from the movie right here. Hey, young blood. Let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you're pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody get hurt. All right, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. People say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? Boots Riley, the director of the movie, in an interview with Vox, expanded a little bit on what he was trying to do with this notion of the white voice. He says, in the film, what Danny Glover's character, Langston, explains is that it's all a performance. Blackness, whiteness, all of this stuff is all a performance. He explains the white voice as something that isn't even what white people really sound like, but it's what they want to sound like, what they wish they sounded like, what they're told they're supposed to sound like. And it has to do with that feeling that the performance of whiteness is something that's supposed to be a counter to what we're told is the performance of blackness. So the racist tropes of blackness are... Here's a culture that's incomplete, in which the culture is making them make the wrong decisions. They're savage. They're not as smart. They're caught up in machismo or whatever and making these decisions that are bad. Then the counter to that is, you know, I've got everything handled. I'm not really worried about any of this stuff. It's all an intellectual endeavor. I don't need money. As a matter of fact, I make $19,000 a year and I am middle class. I think this is probably one of the few movies I've seen recently that that engages so directly with how, you know, the ways that people talk can affect their power to some extent. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that in the, in the clip that we listened to there, you know, the first explanatory gesture that Langston makes about, you know, how to turn on or how to code switch into white voices. Oh, imagine it's how you talk when you're speaking to the police, right. when you're showing deference to authority or, yeah. you know, when you're sort of, you know, communicating as if everything is okay, as if you've got everything handled, that there's nothing wrong. Right. Right. And then the film from there tracks how 
Cash is able to use his white voice to advance, you know, to a, a really powerful position in the company. Right. There are these occasional moments where he's hanging out with his non-work friends, many of whom are left wing, all of whom are people of color. Mm -hmm. And he code switches into the white voice seemingly by accident right. or, or he's not really thinking about how his audience might perceive it. And his friends, his close contacts, like, do not like it. It makes them really upset. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of highlights this other aspect of language ideology that there are always multiple competing language ideologies right. in, in any social space, mm -hmm. right? So there are people who will hear Cash's white voice and be reassured by it and go, oh, this guy is not a threat. Right. In fact, he's a very nice man. We should promote him we should yes you know give him more power in this company but there are other people who are going to hear it and say like whoa what is going on with this guy he's putting on airs he is betraying us like he's no longer one of us and so it's, it's a fascinating example of of how language ideology works I yeah think. it's been one of the most easily digestible ways to cut through a sort of complex dynamic like language ideology in different social spaces much more succinct and really concise and well rendered that I haven't seen in a long time so yeah and so I I actually had an idea based on this which was that I I don't know how you feel Alex but I I kind of think that I personally could benefit from a slightly whiter voice so really? I, well so so i was I mean, wondering if, if, if i mean i've been working on one okay and i was wondering if you'd mind if i if i tried it out here sure no shoot go go ahead okay Hi, my name is Calvin Pollock. I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Carnegie Mellon. I'm a producer and co-host of uh, the Reverb podcast, and I study national security rhetoric, leaks, and corpus-assisted analysis. My pronouns are he, him. Well, I'm still working on it. Uh, still you know, working out the kinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's still something that I'm trying out, but, you know. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I think it could help me on the job market. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I definitely, I think you'd be, you're, that, that's an almost job market ready voice right okay. there. So Great. anyway. Great. Cool. <laughs> so before we sign off here, I just wanted to touch on a few more through lines of the show. Some, mm -hmm. some concepts that have come up again and again across the episodes that we've gone through that I think we want to focus on in, in further episodes and things, unresolved questions that we still want to answer or that are generative concepts for future episodes. So the first one that I had written down was rhetorics of the future, mm -hmm. how this kind of seems to be involved in just about everything that we've talked about so far on the show. There's always this future dimension to all these discourses and all these problems that we've been studying, whether it's explicitly in Patty Dunmire's work on security rhetoric and how that's always sort of future-oriented and forward-looking, all the way to the discussions of place-based resistance and the billboard, uh, there are black people in the future. Mm -hmm. These are all about contested spaces in the future that essentially are, you know, played out, you know, obviously, materially in lots of ways, but also also through discourse, through language, and through rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's going to be a major thing to pay attention to in future episodes as well. Yeah, and we can think about this as fundamentally this is deliberative rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, that deliberative rhetoric is always future-oriented, that when right. we're talking about what do we want to 
do and who do we want to be mm-hmm. that this is something that classical rhetoricians were calling deliberative rhetoric and, and right. explicitly identifying as being future oriented. Yeah. I think also another thing that that came up as a really profound tension in a lot of our episodes was certainty versus uncertainty mm-hmm. and the role that language plays in representing mm-hmm. things as either being very certain or very uncertain or somewhere in between and the power that that you can have by either presenting things as codified as fact you know we're very very certain that this you know that global warming is real and that it's happening and that it has consequences versus you know casting doubt on on things like that i mean there are of course extreme consequences for people's belief in those kinds of things but also just it seems to have a place in kind of all of these all these topics that we've talked about the extent to which things are presented as being either certain or uncertain or whether there's a sort of quest for certainty at the root of conspiracy theory discourse or or some of the other kinds of things we've talked about as a motive right so i think that that's that's another really interesting conceptual pair that will be good to explore further in in some of our future episodes for sure additionally i think rhetoric and aesthetics the ways in which rhetorical discourse relies a lot on affective, you know, emotional, aesthetic judgments that go beyond just the sort of critical, rational discourse. Traditionally, you know, we like to think of deliberative rhetoric should be rational or should have all these hallmarks of like logical discourse. Mm -hmm. But we can't ever escape that aesthetic dimension, as we said before. Yeah. And I've been really drawn to this idea of taste that, that that we have a taste for certain positions and certain perspectives on various controversies and that those things are deeper than just about the logical structure of arguments on either side of an issue. Right. And then finally, I think this was probably the most powerful one for me anyway, was the relationship of language to power. Mm. So, you know, we've talked at length in multiple episodes about language and, uh, you know, control over discourse as having, you know, it can be used in the service of oppression and violence and, you know, marginalization. It can be used for all these deleterious and bad forces. But at the same time, it's also one of our only ways out, right? Like it's like communication and deliberation and, you know, rhetorical practice is so essential to the human experience that, you know, it, it by necessity kind of has to be, it's a crucial component of, of liberation too and of you know seeing the most good for the most people in the world i think that language is inherently a part of that as well yeah and i think for us one of the most important things is going to be maintaining the dual nature of this pairing that you know at certain moments one is more prominent and at certain moments the other is more prominent that power inflects language you know at every level But at the same time, it's constructed via language. You know, we need to maintain awareness of both of those aspects of it because it's very easy to believe that language on its own can solve all problems. Mm -hmm. It's also very easy to believe that, you know, power makes language irrelevant or a kind of afterthought or a side effect of, of its own workings. And I think both of those are too simplistic. Absolutely. Um, we need we need rhetorical and linguistic understanding. I mean, that's how we understand power. That's how we understand our relationship to our material circumstances and other things, too. You know, we can't understand, you know, the base, if you like, without without communicating about it. And I think we also can't pretend 
that power does not affect the ways that people speak and Absolutely. the arguments that get heard and the arguments that get made. Absolutely. Um, that's something that I think rhetorical scholars really need to keep constantly in mind is the role of power and particularly economic and political power, you know, in an age of basically unbridled corporate capitalism, that kind of material context for rhetoric and language and debate is centrally involved in the shape of language and rhetoric and debate. Yeah, well said. Well, with those in mind, I have to say, you know, I think speaking for both of us, we're really, really looking forward to sharing all of these things with you in season two, really looking forward to our future episodes. Calvin, anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Uh, no, just, uh, you know, thanks for tuning in. And uh, uh, we're going to do a lot more bits and uh, yes. skits, sketches. <laughs> Goof- Folks, we're going we're gonna to lighten things up a little Goofballs, bit. Goofballs. Uh, <laughs> and if you have any suggestions for topics or... Uh, you know, anything that you'd like to hear on the show, please reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, both uh, Alex and I are on there. Uh, I'm at Calvin Pollock, just my full name. Yep, I'm at AJ Helberg. Uh, that's uh, no spaces in there. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Our co-producer is Ryan Mitchell. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.